0: I don't want to ruin the surprise, but Bill Gaciamas went through not one, but three life threatening illnesses. And then he makes this incredible statement that you'll hear from him today. Those illnesses became the greatest thing that happened to him. They eventually helped him find his purpose in life. You're going to be blown away by how Bill handled adversity and became unbeatable on this episode.
1: These stories of triumph over adversity will help you handle your toughest days in life and become unbeatable.
0: Bill Gassiamas, thank you so much for getting up early in Australia to be with me today. I guess I should say good day, mate. Good day. Yeah. Uh, my pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Hey, I've been looking forward to getting to know you a little bit just because of this incredible story that I've heard about. And how you've used your past to go out there and help other people. So we're going to get into a little bit of your family, of your health uh, problems, and how you've turned those things around and turned them into a purpose and and are helping other people recover after stroke. In fact, this very successful podcast of yours, the Recovery After Stroke podcast. So um, let's start off by talking a little bit about your family. Tell us about Christine and your two children.
1: Well, I'll tell you about Christine first because she came before the children. Yes, Uh, okay. (laughs) We met when I was about 19 and uh, we were just loving things. We were together for uh, about two years, just having a good time and trying to get, getting to know each other. And um, one day she, she drops the news on me that she's pregnant.
0: Big bomb on you, right?
1: Oh, I was 21. So it's a, pretty big deal right yeah. and uh and if you remember back to when you were 21 and how uh, wet behind the ears you were uh-huh. i was probably just as wet behind the ears or or more and it wasn't an issue for me absolutely at all the biggest issue was dealing with the parents and all the people that oh, were yeah. going to comment and respond and give you their opinion and all those things and that was the hardest part to navigate as far as i was concerned christine was the girl for me so we um told who we had to tell and we then just decided that we were going to get married and there yeah. was no issue about yeah. it so we went ahead and we did that and six months later my first son was born and um that was peter and he was born in 1996 and um we were living with my parents at that stage just mm-hmm. trying to make ends meet trying to stay afloat and do all those things I was working three jobs, and Christine was trying to navigate being at home yeah, with I remember her days. brand new in-laws. It was tough. It was tough, and um, and then when uh, when we got on our feet, when we had uh, a couple of years under our belt, and my son was around two years old, we ended up moving out into a place of our own, and that's really when our life took off, and things started to go in the direction that we wanted to, with less interference from other people, and then. After being uh, there for a couple of years, our second son was born, John, and um, he was born in 2000. He's a perfect millennial baby. And uh, those guys were the thing that drove me to be the type of person that created the environment where it was really possible for me to get to the point of becoming unwell and being sick and what happened was I thought that what I needed to do to serve them and support them the best was not look after myself not sleep enough work as many hours a day as I possibly <laughs> yeah. could um, and never have any me time never de-stress never do any of that stuff and just just keep going 100 mile an hour and then of course uh, I wasn't doing the best job at that I thought I was Mm -hmm. doing the best I could, but I I don't think I was. And, you know, it wasn't until later, until after I became unwell that I really had to stop and take stock and look back and see uh, what I was doing that wasn't working and then make some changes. Christine was by me the whole time. She was extremely supportive. And, in fact, she put a lot of her life on the line to be a mum. Not on the line, um, on hold to be Uh a mum. And, you know, one of those things – she put on hold was to go to university and study the field that she was interested in. She wanted to be a psychologist. And we just did the thing that everybody does. You know, we just sacrificed ourselves for our kids. And I wouldn't change it, but I would do it a little differently if I could.
0: I was just thinking, man, your story sounds so familiar and not just to other guys that I've met, but it sounds a little bit familiar to me. Talk about wet behind the ears. When I learned that we were pregnant with our first child, and we had been trying for a couple of years after getting married to have a baby. But when I learned that she was pregnant, I got a letter in the mail because I was overseas when I learned this. Um, I had just gone overseas and I dropped the letter on the floor like it had burned my fingers. That's how intense it was. When I, and I thought to myself, man, I am going to mess this human being up. If I'm supposed to be a daddy, I have a lot to figure out. Um So I totally know where you're coming from, man. For those people who are driving right now who don't get a chance to see you. Now others are watching this podcast, but for people that are driving and listening to it and they can't see you Just watching you and listening to you, no one would ever know that you've had some health problems in the past, but you've already alluded to it a couple of times when you talked about being unwell. You married Christine, sounds like you were perfectly healthy, and then as a relatively young guy in the prime of your life, you had a couple of pretty significant health issues. I'm not going to steal the secret. Why don't you tell everybody what happened starting around 37 years old?
1: Yeah, it started before that for sure, but uh-huh. at around thirty-six, I think I was at the it was I was at a grand final of a football game in Australia. We call it AFL. My team was in the grand final, they were playing another team, and I was yelling and screaming and being completely ridiculous and idiotic. Like as every my
0: football fan should be. Yes. Yeah.
1: As my team was inching towards potentially a win, I was trying to get them over the line. And then <laughs> that particular evening, I had a massive headache, the most biggest headache I've ever had. Uh-huh. And it lasted for two or three days. And I, it was so bad that I decided I was going to go and get it checked mm-hmm. out. I went to the hospital, and they did a lumbar puncture, and they did all these things. And they gave me the clean bill of health, and they said mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong, everything's okay. And after about six or seven days, it subsided and it went. And I thought, well, that was nothing. So about, about a year and a bit later, probably about a year and six months later, I woke up one morning and I had a numb sensation on my big left toe. And that was it. And I was at the gym and that, that's the reason I noticed it. Yeah. because I, I went to put my, my shoe on and it just felt a bit weird, but it's just a big toe and yeah. it's just a little <laughs> bit of numbness. So it's not going to stop big toe. me getting Who on Who needs with my one life. of those, right? That's yeah. it. that's yeah. it. So I just ignored it and went about my business. And I we have a proper maintenance business. So, you know, we had work to do and all that mm-hmm. type of thing. But then that was on a Friday. And then a few days later on the Sunday, when I was at the gym, running on the treadmill, I noticed that the sensation of the numbness had spread up my entire foot. And again, I didn't think anything of it. I just kept running. But I noticed I couldn't wow. run on the treadmill yeah. the way I normally could. Yeah. It was a bit weird. So I went about my business. Now, I was being in property maintenance. We're always lifting heavy things Uh and doing the wrong thing. So I made my chiropractor responsible for my back health. So every time I did something wrong, I had him on speed dial and said, you need to fix me up. I need to get back to work tomorrow. And that's what I did. And when I got to the chiropractor's appointment that Monday after the Sunday run, that was Mm -hmm. a bit weird, I said to him, I think I've done something to my back. I'm feeling like this. And he said, there's no... Apparent cause or reason why you might be experiencing that numbness and it's not a result of your back. It might be some inflammation that's occurred that's mm-hmm. coming up. Just keep an eye on it and get back to me if you need to. So the next two or three days evolved and the numbness had spread all the way up to my hip and now I couldn't feel my entire left leg. Oh, my goodness. And, yeah. 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 And my wife, Christine, goes, you're walking funny. And I said to her, what do you mean I'm walking funny? I'm not walking funny. Just leave me out of it. I'm not. She goes, what's the matter? I said, I don't know. My leg's a bit numb, but there's nothing wrong.
0: Now, I want to just pause for a second. Any rational human being would say a guy in the prime of his life who's as fit and healthy as you are, who says my leg is a bit numb, but there's nothing wrong. The second half of that statement does not work with the first half. But please continue.
1: It totally doesn't. And it doesn't get better, Jeff. (laughs) And. Nonetheless, I said to her, look, I just, I'm going to make another appointment with a chiropractor because I know that he'll sort it out for me. I rang that chiropractor on the Wednesday and his receptionist answered. She asked me, is it urgent? I said, it's not urgent. She goes, great, because he can't see you today. He can see you on Friday. I said, all right, Friday's fine now. Make it the last appointment of the day so when I get there, uh, I can get all my work done Mm -hmm. during the day and I don't get interfered with, you know. She said, fine, that's great. As the days progressed, the numbness spread to my entire left side. So wow. by Friday morning, I couldn't feel my left side. And I went to climb a ladder at work, and my left leg wouldn't stay on the rung of the ladder. So I looked down and, and saw there was some water at the bottom of the ladder. And I thought, oh, it must be the shoe slippery. So I picked up my leg from the knee, placed it on the bottom rung of the ladder, Thinking and then proceeded. Absolutely nothing's wrong. Just keep working. Nope, nothing's wrong. Keep working. Keep going up the ladder. Show the guys what they needed to do for me. Come back down the ladder. Get through my entire day and then go to the chiropractor about about 4.30 p.m. And then the chiropractor puts me on the table and within a minute says, you have to go to the hospital. There's nothing wrong with your back. And I said to him, hang on a sec. I can't go to the hospital. I've got work tomorrow. And we argued and he argued back. And eventually I went home. Oh, and my, my wife goodness. said, <laughs> "Christine goes, "How come you didn't go to the hospital when you said so?" I said, "Because I've got to work tomorrow, Christine, you know what's going to happen. I'll go to hospital, they'll keep me in, and then I won't be able to get to work tomorrow." And she said, "Why don't I take you to the hospital? They'll show you there's nothing wrong, and then you can go to work tomorrow." And I said, "Great idea." We went to the hospital. (laughs) We went to the hospital. I sent her and the boys home because I knew I was going to be there for hours. And then at about 1130 p.m. that night, the doctor came in, the first doctor that came in and said to me, there's a shadow on your brain and we don't know what it is. And you need to stay here for a little bit longer.
0: So you were thinking, see, Christine, I told you.
1: I told you, so what I did is I sent her a message back and lied to her and told her, they haven't found anything yet and see, now they're keeping me in overnight. We'll talk in the morning because I didn't want her to have a terrible night's sleep. And that was the beginning of the process that found the first uh, brain hemorrhage in my head and the cause of that brain hemorrhage was unknown for three years. And I spent seven days in hospital. They did a barrage of tests and then they sent me home. No work, no exertion, no driving, no nothing. Just go at home and Mm -hmm. stay home. Come back if anything gets worse and come back and see us in six weeks for your follow-up appointment just so we can see how this thing is tracking. So just about a day before my six-week appointment against doctor's orders, I went to work and (laughs) I was almost going to drive and I rang somebody at the last second and said to them, come and pick me up and take me to, the, to work with you guys because I can't be at home anymore. Uh-huh. And while I was there, I was watching them paint this massive wall and I was sitting on a chair watching them paint and my left side started to go limp on me and I couldn't straighten myself up. And the room started to spin and I started to feel nausea. I rushed the guys up and told them to finish um, painting the wall that they were painting to take me home. They took me home. Christine took me to the hospital. And by the time I got out of the car and walked about the 50 or 100 meters to the emergency triage room, I didn't know my name, what day it was, I didn't know what I was doing there. I collapsed. And when I woke up, there was a strange lady at the end of my bed saying, do you know who I am? And I said, I'm sorry, I don't know who you are. And it was my wife.
0: Oh, my goodness. That was six weeks after the first brain hemorrhage, right? Yeah. So what did the doctors diagnose with this one?
1: Again, they had no idea what caused it because the blood clot that was in my brain now was about the size of a golf ball and it was interfering with the wow. MRI. Eventually, they discovered that it was a faulty blood vessel called an arteriovenous malformation that I was born with that is benign for a lot of people and uh-huh. does nothing. But then for the lucky few, it pops and it bleeds. And for some people, it's catastrophic and they won't make it. And for others, it creates the types of symptoms that I experienced.
0: Yeah. So um, I want to paint this picture for everybody who's listening right now. Really, when you started to have that first headache, you were essentially in the prime of your life. You were working and physically active and really no indication because you were born with this condition. No indication that there was anything wrong with you at all. Had a headache that lasted for six days. That's weird. Then a big toe that turns into a foot that turns into the whole left side of my body. That's not good. But now you're 37 years old and facing a life-threatening illness. And not only a life-threatening illness, but the treatment is going to be long. It's going to be hard. And you're going to be different if I can use these words for the rest of your life as a result of this condition. Is Did I paint that accurately?
1: Very accurately.
0: So what happens next?
1: So the next nine to 12 months were a bit bizarre because going, I was going in and out of this kind of like haze of, of in the world and out of the world, sort of extraterrestrial Uh kind of out of spaced out and weird things. And, I couldn't remember who came to visit me and I couldn't type an email. I remember needing for work to actually type a couple of emails and it may have taken me five or six hours to type three or four lines. And I'm not aware of time. I was going to say, I
0: hope everybody who's listening right now, I hope that sentence just hit them like a ton of bricks. Think about all of the stuff that you have to do at work and now your life has been changed so much that it takes five or six hours to type one email go ahead man continue
1: but i'm not aware of it at the time at the time so i'm sitting at the computer and thinking that i'm doing great and it's happening and then i i realized that five hours have elapsed and it's like how did i take five hours to type an email so i was cognitively really um seriously impacted and then i couldn't drive so my dad was my my chauffeur for six to nine months and christine was also helping out where she yeah, could when she yeah. wasn't working and when she wasn't looking after the kids. Um, I I wasn't able to be uh, physically active or or anything like that. So my identity, the who I was, completely changed and I was trying to rediscover who I was and I was f- trying to force myself to get back to that yeah, person, yeah. which was never going to work, but I had no other – way to understand how how i was going to do this recovery and i my personality changed because i was very aggressive quite angry um very highly emotional christine would cop the brunt of it and she would be Mm -hmm. the person that would have to put up with all that stuff for no reason and and then i i started to i started to go internally and started to wonder what I can do to improve my situation because the doctors were doing as much as they could, but I was still facing this. And that's when I kind of took responsibility for a lot of my behavior and a lot of the things that I was feeling. And I sought out counseling and a whole bunch of other things that Uh I could do to impact my life in a positive way while I was going through this really uncomfortable and terrible time.
0: Yeah, let's talk. Um, let's pause for just a second. I want to come back and talk about this six to 12 months of recovery. But it's occurred to me, uh, just listening to you now, about Christine and just how significantly this impacted her. And not, not just her, but anybody who's gone through a stroke or some pretty significant, you know, um, cognitive issues. The the guys that I guys and gals that I know from the military that have gone through traumatic brain injury or through um, something like that, uh, what you're describing sounds exactly like their world. But I cannot help but think about the family. Christine married this guy who was aggressive and who was a go getter and who was extremely active and uh, had some character issues, obviously. But you know you go through a transition and become a different person and it's happening right in front of her eyes and you don't really even have any control over this, but she's now married to a very different man than she met uh, years earlier. Can you, for just a moment, describe how that played out for her and your sons watching you go through this transition and not having any control over how this thing turns out and maybe even a little bit scared of, who you're going to become
1: yeah absolutely we or we were all scared of who I might become the kids were just uh, they were 16 and 12 at the time so uh-huh. they didn't really um, they were aware of what was happening especially in my 16 year old but they didn't really know have the they didn't have the resources how to not take things personally so when I would react and abreact, react and when I had massive fatigue issues and I couldn't actually uh bring myself to even make a cup of tea or anything like that without their support i would get frustrated and angry at them and and it would be the the kind of don't you know how much help i need do i have to tell you can you not see yeah but again they actually couldn't see because i looked physically well on the outside and they were just copying it now christine she was on the emotional roller coaster um internally pretending externally that she was mm-hmm. keeping it all together for me. But then I, I used to, I used to get angry and I had abused her once for parking in the wrong spot because it was going to take too long for me to walk yeah. to the door of the particular store we were going to. So she was being, she was working the only breadwinner. She was being a mum to both the boys, picking them up, dropping them off from school, getting them ready, cooking dinner, doing all those things. She was, trying to care for me as best as she could. She had no yeah. rule book. She had no way to do that. And she was just making it up as she goes. And she was probably the most impacted person that I could ever imagine. And as a result of that, I uh, I feel like the, the trauma that she experienced was kind of on another level compared to the, yeah. Trauma, yeah. the trauma that I experienced. She had emotional trauma and I had, physical and mental health issues and also emotional issues, but she also got sent home with this guy who's done well and no support from the hospital system or from the medical system is how do you deal with somebody who has a traumatic brain injury? How do you support somebody like that?
0: Yeah. And as you just said, there's no rule book to follow here. What you're describing in Christine, I have met in dozens of women, literally who have said, my husband got blown up. He suffered a massive brain injury. He's physically okay on the outside, but on the inside, he is a radically different human being than I married, and we're 12 years into our marriage, and now I'm married to a totally different person. How do I do this? And not only that, but there's all of the grief of, I want to be able to go back to the guy that I knew before, and I'm scared because I don't know who this guy is going to become. It's not just women. Um, Spouses go through Mm -hmm. this all the time, but... Thank you, because I wanted to just camp for a second on the challenges that this put on Christine and your sons and everybody around you who loves you, Um, you and everybody else who's gone through some brain injuries or gone through some pretty significant internal trauma that people can't see on the outside. Let's go back to that recovery. And by the way, one of the reasons why you're the perfect person for this podcast, Bill, is because you have to fight to get healthy again. It's not going to happen easy. It's not going to come. Somebody's not going to be able to do it for you. And this whole podcast is devoted to people who decide, I'm not just going to lay on the couch and complain about my circumstances. I'm going to get up and do something. So can you talk about fighting for your recovery during that really hard, long time? process.
1: Yeah. First thing I decided was that if it was going to happen again, I know a lot of stroke survivors, they they have the fear that stroke is going to happen again. And it's a
0: reasonable real fear, right?
1: Yeah. 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 It's and it's possible and it does, right? So I I figured that I don't want to be responsible for causing it again. So I'm going to do everything I can to take me out of the equation of the person who contributes this time Uh to the next stroke. And I had to do a lot of work, and it started with my mental health recovery. For me, I was in counseling pretty much seven days after the next uh, incident, and Mm -hmm. I was with my counselor, and we were just talking through it. Christine was there. We took the kids there. And I just needed to get my bearings and try to come to terms with what had happened and a path forward. And part of the path forward was regular um, counseling sessions with my psychologist. That was – non-negotiable so we booked that in and we made that happen and then I got real busy to learn about how you can support a brain to heal but in 2012 there's not a lot of information available on those topics and there's not a lot of information on the internet and there's no podcasts about those topics yeah in other words somebody needs
0: to start a recovery after stroke podcast is what you're saying that's what the world Uh, needs (laughs) exactly yeah sorry go ahead man Um, But
1: that was before I knew how to do that, right? And Uh before I I knew it was me that had to do that. Um, So then I just did a lot of work in reading and I I discovered that what I can do is support decreasing inflammation in my brain. So that's part of the problem that was going on because of the massive blood clot in my head. It was causing inflammation. So I wanted to contribute to reducing that. Mm -hmm. And some of the ways that I could do that was um, to change my diet and to stop consuming food that was going to impact my brain in uh-huh. a negative way. And and regardless of what, this is not about me being an expert in food, but this is me noticing that when I stopped consuming caffeine, it helped. When I stopped consuming alcohol, it helped. When I stopped smoking, it helped. When I stopped drinking alcohol, it helped. And when I stopped drinking and consuming dairy products, it helped. Mm-hmm. And when I stopped consuming and drink, drinking gluten, uh, eating glutinous products, they all helped. So that's what I did. I didn't do them all at the same time. I did them one at a time and slowly Uh over a long period of time. So I was feeling really good about the fact that I'd taken some control in this situation where I had no control before, and I was at least supporting my brain to not be inflamed. And that then creates a situation for healing to occur a little bit more rapidly and a little better. And the... Most next important thing that I did was I started to do some um, internal work meditations about me and just checking inwards and checking in with my heart and just trying to discover what are some of the, my own traumas that I had to Mm -hmm. deal with and overcome from my past and the current ones. And I worked on, on dealing with those. And then one of the big ones, and this is probably the biggest one, Jeff, is I started to apologize to everybody that I needed to apologize to. My children, my wife, my family, my extended family, anyone who I might have wronged. And the people who I couldn't reach, I still apologized to them even though I didn't know who they are or where they were. And I got to this stage where I then started to practice what I preached. I didn't want me to do an apology and then remain the same idiot that made all those mistakes Uh in the past. I actually started to change my behavior and started to um, check myself and then go back and apologize every time I stepped out of line and started to do some uh, self-mastery of my emotions and my mental state and all those types of things so that I can, going forward, have a way so that if I do get to that next stroke and perhaps that's the last one I'm going to have and then it's all over, yeah. well, then I have no regrets. I look back and I go, I was a bit, I was dumb before I started this journey. I'm smarter for it now. And I've made good yeah. on the things that I had done in the past. And I can go with a clear conscience. And I was really thinking about the next one being the last one and not because it wasn't going to happen again because I might not be around. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I hope some people have just heard the comments that you made when you started really thinking about the guy that you were before the strokes and then what was happening to you and how it was out of your control. And then you made the really powerful and I think really courageous decision that you got some things that you need to apologize for. And I don't know how much longer I'm going to be around. So I'm going to just go ahead and say it. I can't help but wonder When your mother heard you apologize or when your wife heard you apologize, if they started wondering, who is this guy? Because it is not at all the Bill that I remember before he had these strokes. Um, And probably your life started to take a turn for the better, not because of the stroke, but because of the way that you were processing it. Is that accurate?
1: Yeah, my life started to improve. Everyone's life around me started to improve, especially my wife and my children because I was...
0: Can I interrupt you, man? I need you to say that one more time because I know people were driving and missed that comment and they really need to hear it from you again. You had a stroke, but your life started to improve because of it. Would you say that one more time for people that missed it?
1: Wow, yeah. Well, absolutely. I didn't have one stroke at that time. I had had two strokes and my life actually started to get better and improve. After them, yeah.
0: Um, you use the word control, and I'm really glad you used that word control because my buddies who got injured in the military – Some of them had visible wounds. They took a gunshot wound and had a long, hard recovery physically. Some of them had some pretty significant internal wounds like traumatic brain injuries or the trauma that goes along with combat. I'm talking about the emotional and psychological trauma that goes along with it. And I've often found that all of those guys, external, physical wounds, internal, invisible wounds, they all struggle For a couple of reasons, they struggle because I had no control over this. I didn't choose this for myself. I had no control over it. I'm changing now, and I don't know what I'm going to turn into in the future. And every single one of them, to a man, I think, have uttered the same phrase that I've already heard you say, I want to go back to the guy that I was before that injury, but there's no going back to it. So we talked just before this episode, Bill about the high five segment that I normally do during this episode. But I want to do this one a little bit different, man. You are the expert here. And I want you to teach the audience just a little bit about how scary that is when you're going through recovery and a lot of things are out of your control. And the guy or gal that gets too scared by losing control and not having any idea what the future holds, they'll just stop doing the hard work, They'll end up on the couch and become a victim of their circumstances. Can you help people? Let's just go back and forth a little bit. Would you help people figure out how to stay in there and fight against the circumstances that will prevent you from recovering and basically do the long, hard fight to recovery, whatever that looks like when you face some pretty significant injuries? So let's, uh, let's just start with that. And I'm gonna, I'm going to let you kick us off on this one. Some of the challenges that a person that's facing recovery after significant injuries have to deal with.
1: Firstly, on the issue of going back to the person that I was before stroke. Actually, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to go back to that yeah. guy. That yeah. guy is the guy that got me in
0: trouble in the first place. Basically, you're saying that guy was a jerk and I don't want to go back to being that guy anymore, right?
1: Yeah, he's doing a lot of good things, but he's doing so many things yeah. wrong. And it's like, if I go back to that guy, I'm stuck behind the eight ball again. Yeah. Let's let's evolve a little and see how we might be able to enhance that
0: that guy. Wow, that is powerful advice right there. Everybody who's stuck in that recovery process of trying to get back to who you were before you got the gunshot wound or the invisible wounds, Keep in mind that there's no going back. And by the way, you weren't a perfect person before then, so why don't you learn and grow as a result of it? Um, Give us some other advice that uh, you're going to have to go through if you're going to fight the long, hard road to recovery.
1: I found that recovery is a three-pronged approach. And you can't do a full recovery if you don't handle all these things that I'm going to talk about in a moment um, at some stage. So the biggest part of the challenge for me, because I don't visually look like I had a stroke, it wasn't the physical recovery, although there was an aspect of that. I did have to learn how to walk and use my left arm again, because when I woke up from brain surgery, uh, after the third bleed, I couldn't feel my entire left side, and that needed to be rehabilitated so that I can actually get on my feet again.
0: Let me make sure everybody heard what you said. A third time you had a brain hemorrhage, not two, but three times. And after the third one, major surgery and had to learn to walk again.
1: Yeah. So the third one happened in November, 2014. It actually happened, Jeff, um, uh, two weeks before my mother-in-law passed away. So Christine had wow. to bury her mom. Oh my goodness. And then she had to plan for me going into brain surgery and what if it goes yeah. horribly
0: right. wrong. Wow. Yeah. Um the three-pronged approach. Do you have to do all three of these at the same time? Is it okay that you tackle them one at a time? And what are the three?
1: Absolutely. So it's the mental health recovery is really big aspect of it it's doing the thing that i did instinctively which was to go and see my counselor but but that also was a habit for me because i had uh, a lot of time uh, seeing my counselor beforehand Mm -hmm. it was one of the things that i did from about the age of 25 because i wasn't that perfect guy so the mental health recovery was really really important now with that is the emotional recovery because your mental health happens in your head but your emotional recovery happens in your heart. yeah. And I needed to go there, I needed to go to my heart, check out what was going there, see what were some of the barriers that I had created over time about connected to my heart, how I was re- emotionally reacting to the people around me, etc. How I was taking things personally, etc. And do the emotional recovery. So the mental health recovery and the emotional recovery, they go hand in hand, and one helps the other. Now, With the people who are experiencing physical um, deficits or challenges after uh, an injury, they absolutely have to do the physical recovery. That's the body. That's the physical body recovery. So if they do the physical recovery, that helps with their mental health when they get more mobile. Yeah. If they go and get some mental health recovery, that supports the emotional recovery. And if they get some emotional recovery, that supports everything. Yeah. And that just makes… Way for a better holistic recovery moving forward.
0: Yeah. And do you tackle these things together or do you work on them primarily one at a time? And when you start to do a little bit of progress on one, then you move to the next. You've been through this. How, how does somebody handle these three, uh, this three prong approach?
1: Yeah. I, I'd say what they do is they handle the one that's the most necessary at the time and the one that needs to happen first. So for me, there was no physical recovery to happen for at least two and a half years after the first bleed. So I did the the mental recovery, and then I did the emotional recovery kind of simultaneously, but I realized that it was necessary a little later on in the journey. And then I did the physical recovery when the time was right. Now, the order doesn't matter. What matters is that you have an awareness that all three things – Go hand in hand, and they have to happen at some point in time. And the one that you're avoiding the most, say you're avoiding yeah. the, the emotional recovery yeah. the most, that's the one you have to do the most.
0: I was just thinking, you're describing every strong warrior that I've ever met, guy or gal. They get a major injury; they their arm gets blown off. Immediately, they start to focus on the physical recovery. There's always this challenge of, I'm no longer able to do with my both arms because I only have one now, what I used to be able to do. So I'm not as valuable of a human being, man, that's a real struggle that they have to get over. But what is most scary and few of them will ever say this out loud is having to deal with what's going on in their heart about this and all of their struggles and their challenges. And I found guys and gals that can make incredible progress physically, but they just get stuck. And I mean, stuck for 20 or 30 years. Listen to me, 20 or 30 years, because they haven't done the hard work of the mental and the emotional recovery from a massive injury. And I'm glad you're telling everybody, you have to work on all three of these. You can't skip one. You can't, you can't, because it's a uh, one third of the
1: recovery is not being done. It's a big deal. Uh, imagine if they did one third less of the preparation before they became a soldier, a warrior, before yeah. they went to battle, before they went to to do the job that they signed up to do. They wouldn't do their job properly. They wouldn't be able to attend in the way that they needed to.
0: Yeah. We usually call the person that only did one third or two thirds of their preparation for combat. We usually refer to them as dead on the battlefield because you didn't do everything you needed to do to survive. So for those of you who are listening to Bill and you're trying to put this high five road to recovery together, you've got some emotional work that you have to do. You've got a hard mental recovery that you have to do. You have to figure out what it's like to be a human being that doesn't have all of the physical and the emotional capacities that you had before this injury. You've got the physical side of it. And then, of course, you've already heard Bill talk about the way that this injury impacts your friends and your loved ones, your family. So you've got some work to do there. And then I want to throw in a fifth one, and that is spiritually, you have to reconcile who you are um, with your creator and what it is that makes a person valuable. And is it just because you have two arms and two legs and your brain works like everybody else that you're valuable as a human being? There's some hard work that has to be done there, too. And I, I'll, I guess uh, one of the best ways to say this is, um, recovery is not for the faint of heart. Would you agree?
1: It's not, and neither is going into battle, Jeff. Right. Yeah. So it's the same type of person that's doing that, that's taking the the responsibility to go to battle. That's the same person that you have to dig into that identity and apply that to this recovery, to this other part of. Your recovery because you have to rebuild your identity
0: yeah after that's exactly a right. major
1: and if your identity is i'm only this thing one thing i'm a warrior or, or I, I go into battle it's like okay great how can i be a warrior somewhere else right. how can i go into battle somewhere else or for somebody else it's the same thing you just got to apply in a different place rebuilding the identity is also part of that recovery and it comes with with the emotional, with the physical, and with the mental recovery, because you start to go to places when you're doing those recoveries that you've never allowed yourself to go before. And then this new version of you emerges, and you're not making it happen. It's just emerging. It's just something that
0: occurs. Yeah. And perhaps the new version of you is a much better version, even though it has been injured severely than the earlier version of you. I want to wrap this uh, episode up, giving you a couple of minutes to talk about two powerful statements that I heard you make. And I really need our listeners to learn this from you. You made the statement that it ended up becoming the best thing that ever happened to you. And it helped you find your purpose. I need you to unpack that for everybody because anybody who's listening in the prime of their life would say, if I had to go through what Bill went through, I think I would just throw in the towel because all I know of myself is I'm strong and I'm smart and I'm competent and I'm able to do things. And then you lose all of that through no fault of your own. So, would you just kind of wrap things up by telling everybody, how did this become the best thing that ever happened to you? How did it help you find your purpose?
1: If I didn't, make it after that first second and third bleed i wouldn't have had enough time to discover the true me and that would have been the worst possible outcome because at 37 it would have all been over the thing is i had this second chance and third chance and fourth chance yeah and it's like wow isn't this amazing how many people get that many chances right. to make things right again, right? Bill has nine so,
0: lives is what you're hearing him say.
1: <laughs> and then some. Um, so so what came of that was I started to, as I, as I approached my recovery in this three-pronged, taking that three-pronged path and rebuilding my identity and surrounding myself with amazing people, I came to the point where one of the, I was challenged by one of my friends, and and Michael said to me, Why don't you, how do you want to deal with this? Like, what do you want to do with it? And I said, I want to share it with people. I want to teach people. I want to grow them. And I live in a place in Melbourne called Preston in Australia. And he said to me, So, where would you like to do this? And I said, I'd love to do this in Preston. And he said, Well, how many people are you going to reach in Preston? (laughs) And I said, I know, 5, 10, 50. And he said, You know, there's this thing called the internet. Aiming for the stars right out of the gate, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He goes, do you know this thing called the internet? And you could go global. I said, well, okay, I I don't know what that is. But I'll I'll leave that in the back of my head. And Uh at some point, what happened was, I got to the stage where I thought, in order for me to fulfill the gap that I had in my life, back then, when I was looking for solutions, I needed to create the solution to the problem that existed. And that was, there was not enough information online. So I took my upon myself, to create a podcast, to learn all the things I needed to learn, to get a podcast up and running and interview other people who had gone through something similar to me and had come out the other side, whether they were bruised, battered, missing limbs or whatever it was, but that they'd come out and they were willing to share their story. I found that by helping them do that, they were healing and recovering. By me doing that with them, I was healing and yeah. recovering. And and at about episode 100 or so, I... I I heard myself say to one of my guests, I think this is the best thing that ever happened to me.
0: <laughs> and you had and to do a double take when purpose. you said that, right? Like, wow.
1: Yeah. I couldn't really believe it. It didn't really sink in for a while. And and then I thought, I think I found my purpose. Now, finding my purpose was not something I was searching for. It's something I stumbled across, yeah. but it was doing something that I never, that I did in service of other people. Right. And when I started to serve other people, I started to get so much back, Yeah, way more than I could ever give. And then from that, I'm feeling like the purpose of my life is to support and help other people, overcome adversity, share stories of recovery, inspire people. And that is not the guy that you would have met before 37. That guy would never have done that stuff. And that's how I got to being in this situation where now – Um, I
0: cannot not do this. It's not possible. Yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful what you're describing right now, man, because you went through some pretty significant things, not once, but multiple times and didn't really have the network that you needed to get through it. Well, so you just decided I'm going to become the network for other people. I'm going to help them have what I didn't have. And it feels good to help others when they're really struggling, especially if you've already been down that road. So Bill, you have a Podcast, a successful podcast called Recovery After Stroke, but that's not it. You're you're making your way through a book right now. You're uh, I think about sixty percent done. What's the topic of the book? You got a working title that people can um, look for on the shelves one day.
1: I have. It's the unexpected way that a stroke became the best thing that ever happened to me. Yeah, and it came from the idea that maybe I wasn't the only one that said that. So I reached out to my Instagram followers. And believe it or not, they, there's a lot of them really reached out back and said, yeah, that's yeah. my story too. Oh. And I'm like, wow. So I interviewed about 12 of them. And what I've got is 10 common things that we all did and looked at uh-huh. and, um, and worked towards. And those 10 common things are the things that are becoming the chapters. And they all shared those 10 common things, and they didn't know they shared them, and neither did I know that I shared them with them. And those are the things that are going to become the 10 chapters that make it possible for potentially some people to get to stroke becoming the best thing that ever happened to them. But of course, this is applicable to anybody at all who is coming through adversity.
0: I hope that the listeners didn't miss this. I didn't miss this, but I hope they didn't miss this. You didn't make 100% cognitive recovery after stroke. Um, you're not at all where you were before your your brain hemorrhages, but you are researching, you're learning, you are developing a podcast that does really well, and you're even disciplining yourself to write, which makes me want to say to all of those guys and gals out there that do have 100% cognitive ability, what's your excuse for not making a bigger difference for uh, others around you? Um, But Bill, I just, uh, man, I got to say this, you're making a big difference, not just for people that have gone through some brain injuries, but you're making a big difference for people that have suffered um, some kind of Um, injury and are not, they don't have the tools to recover. You're helping them get up off the couch, stop feeling sorry for yourself and do the hard work to recover as much as you're able to from what you've gone through. More than that though, Bill, the thing that I have been most impressed by, I've been most inspired by in this episode is you're helping them realize your best days don't have to be behind you. Even though things are very different today, your best days can be in front of you if you will not let this thing define you and decide your identity, if you'll go out there and become a better person because of it. So thank you for being part of this episode. Anything you want to say to the listeners as we get ready to wrap this thing up? Thank you for having me.
1: It's, I truly appreciate it. And the, and this is what's possible. It's possible for me to go through stroke recovery, struggle for uh, quite a number of years and still, um, Not get back to the full physical health that I had, but actually enjoy my life better, be a better version than I've ever been, be healthier than I've ever been. And as a result of that, get invited to be on podcasts with people all around the planet that I've never, ever would have expected this other 37-year-old person to ever do.
0: Yeah, what a... Beautiful opportunity to get up at some crazy early hour in the morning in Australia to appear on this podcast in the United States. That wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for that, uh, those strokes that you went through, man, Never. you're, you're awesome. Thank you for being part of this episode, Bill. My pleasure. There you have it, man. Sometimes tragedy strikes and it's your willingness to face tragedy, to do the hard work of recovery that could turn you in to a much better version of you than who you are today. I hope you were as blown away. I hope you were as inspired by Bill as I was on this episode of unbeatable. Hey, if you've listened to us in the past and you like what you're hearing, would you go ahead and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform? And if you're just stumbling across this thing for the first time, did you know that we're out there on pretty much all of the social media platforms? You can find us by just searching for at unbeatable podcast. And Bill is a living example of this survival guide that I've created. I got this free PDF. It's for anybody who's interested. It's just full of quotes and ideas and motivational statements that will help you when you're really facing adversity. And if you want the Unbeatable Army survival guide, all you got to do to get it is go to unbeatablearmy.com. Thanks for tuning in this week. I'll see you next week.